dream on a crystal clear ocean to ride on the crest of a wild raging storm to work in the service of life and the living in search of the answers to questions unknown to be part of the movement part of the growing part of beginning to understand Greetings to all those who have taken the time to listen to this podcast. For this Sunday, as a way of highlighting the celebration of Earth Day 2022, last Friday, I'd like to address a couple of aspects of Earth Care that lead to a couple of questions that we can discuss on Sunday. So this week's discussion will touch on the religious and the scientific, and each will generate one question, so two questions total, for our dialogue later. But the overall focus that drives the present discussion is, what are the necessary motivations and processes that faith communities can draw from to address the effects of climate change. Now, I had some difficulty in arranging my thoughts for our present discussion because last month I listened to a webinar by Dr. Doug Tallamy, which you'll hear about more in a moment. He suggests some avenues that individuals and groups can, can, can pursue that have the potential of making a significant impact on the effects of climate change based on his work as an entomologist. And for those of you um, like me that had to look up that term, uh, it means a bug scientist is that how I would classify it. Yet I am convinced that science is not the whole answer and can never provide the solution because due to the enormity and complexity of the problem, science can only do so much. This is due to different aspects of the scientific endeavor, such as the nature of scientific discovery in itself, the public perception of trustworthiness of science is another issue, and the way its research is disseminated. And this is just for starters. So I think I will begin with the religious side of things, and then move on to what strategies we might might possibly want to pursue, both as individuals and as a group. So, first, the religious side. When we look to our sacred texts, are there any insights that we can can, can, can draw from regarding earth care? Actually, one of the arguments proposed by some climate change deniers is that the Bible does not discuss environmental issues. So let me just simply say the question is posed as, how can a thousands-year-old document speak to our current ecological crisis? But like I said, this is just a way of framing the question that really misunderstands the nature of religious revelation, and we can talk about that later as well. 
<clears throat> but for this morning's discussion, let's center on Joel's, the prophet Joel's prophecy and his understanding of the environmental catastrophe of his day. Yet before we jump into the book of Joel, there are some ground rules to be spelled out as we get started. So three points. Number one, it's imperative that we view the earth as having intrinsic value apart from humanity. And what I mean is there is a subjectivity to nature that Joel takes for granted. Number two, Joel, along with the other writing prophets, was an ancient author, and as such, he leaves some anthropocentric, okay, human-centered biases, biases in the text. Anthropocentric is just a highfalutin word, which means human-generated. So what I mean is that he is a creature of his own time and culture. Number three, lastly, as with the world's other sacred texts, our sacred scriptures are composed of a multitude of voices and perspectives, and so can be bent to justify almost any perspective. So we have to be sensitive readers and not manipulators of our shared texts. Okay, my overall perspective is that the suggestions, and I want to emphasize not necessarily answers, that we derive from our questioning of the text can help us and or challenge us to practice eco-friendly living in the midst of, a, of the present ecological crisis. Some, actually most, would call this idealistic. I personally call it hopeful, you decide. So here are a few verses from Joel 1 and 2. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what those swarming locusts have left, the stripping locusts have eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep and wail, all you, drine, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has fangs of a lioness. The field is ruined, and the land mourns, for the grain is ruined. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament. The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The, er the herds of cattle wander aimlessly, because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To thee, O Lord, I cry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field long for thee, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. 
Wow, um, there's an encouraging bit of scripture for us. But let's proceed. Joel was a prophet of God who probably lived and prophesied in Judah. Scholars are not sure when, since there are few historical markers upon which to place a date. But much of his small, his small book laments what is happening to the land as in, and in, is entreating God for an answer. Joel lived in a problematic time in Judah when both the land was being destroyed by pestilence, as we just read, and the people were so self-absorbed that they had lost sight of their relationship with God and their obligations to the land and each other. So for Joel, there are three players that have a stake in the social <clears throat> and ecological circumstances at the time of his writing. The earth, humans, and God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Joel begins his prophecy focused on the earth, specifically the land. That is the overwhelming problem that the land is experiencing. He also notes that the land is responding in the only way that it can, with lament. This is verse 10. In fact, the earth is the first subject to respond to God's call to lament. So part of Joel's prophetic message is for humans to wake up or to use Joel's metaphor, to sober up and look around, which involves a call to lament. This is chapter 2, verse 12. Joel's prophecy goes on to address God as well. But there's enough here for us to discuss this morning in terms of what role lament plays in the current state of the climate crisis. I'm thinking about both the role of individuals and faith communities. When I say role, I mean to include our motivational processes as well as practices. Now, I'm not sure that Joel has helped us out tremendously by introducing the concept of lament simply because there are so many directions that one can go and not all are beneficial. But let's proceed giving him the benefit of the doubt. Let's try to get a handle on the concept. What does it mean to lament? Generally, lamenting evokes thoughts of sadness or crying due to extreme pain, which can be both physical and or emotional. But biblical lament is not just cries, but is an actual event that involves the lamenter, God, and the lamenter's enemies um, or, or issues. According to Klaus Westermann, a leading Hebrew biblical scholar, the event usually follows a flexible five-fold sequence involving a prior promise, suffering, cries of distress, deliverance, and finally, praise. Theologically, there's an oscillation between hope and suffering, or deliverance and defeat, or divine presence and divine absence, or between cries of distress and praise. Lament, thus, is defined by the lamenter's back-and-forth experience of pain and hope. 
in my theological reflection, this is part of a larger picture of the, the ascetical depiction of religious experience that occurs across many religious traditions and, in fact, across all cultures. Let me mention just how this can lead to two broader conversations out of many that we won't be discussing this morning. First, in a spirit of <laughs> shameless self-promotion, it's something I'll be exploring on Wednesday evenings on Zoom during the month of June in a religion and film series uh, in, our, uh, in an exploration of um, the, uh, the, the saga of uh, Batman as an American religious icon and why an ascetic mindset resonates so powerfully with the American public. That's one. The second one is the way lament forms the foreground of Paul's theology of suffering, especially like in his letter to the Romans. So, for instance, it amplifies the underlying tension between gospel promises and righteous suffering. Lament and the saving acts of God are indissolubly linked. You cannot separate them. Finally, lament can be seen as a form of prayer and not just a cry of distress. Okay, now, is lamenting only a human activity? Creation laments. God laments. But in fact, one of Joel's indictments in his prophecy is that humans are the only ones around him at his time who are not lamenting and should be. Now, lament involves deep emotion. Can we be more specific? What kind of emotions? Perhaps regret or sorrow? Of course. One problem I see here, though, is that if lament does not transition to something more positive or productive, then living comes to a stop. Lament is essential because it allows subjects to begin to process their pain. But the healing train, okay, I'm using a metaphor of a locomotive, the healing train must continue with stops at acknowledgement, it stops at forgiveness, stop at hope, and stop at resolve, among others. So it seems that Joel's message to his community was that you people, Joel's audience, are so disengaged and aloof from your surroundings and neighbors that you haven't even started the process of lamenting because in your situation, you have not taken ownership or at least recognition of what's happening, both interpersonally and environmentally. So hopefully our discussion on Sunday will touch on religious motivations for actions. So, lest I front-load the discussion too much, let me just say that for me, lament is not necessarily some kind of temporary step, but it's a continuous struggle throughout life. In other words, if the struggle does not continue, if it stops, then you may have stopped growing 
or healing or processing as well. Because from my perspective, lament is experienced in the, in the lamenter's back and forth struggle between pain and hope. Now, I'll be interested in your perspectives on this. But first, let me turn to one suggestion or strategy that, defi- that derives from the field of entomology or bugs. So now, the scientific side. The Disciples of Christ's Green Chalice Office presented a webinar last month that I would like to discuss briefly and that has, that I have had Ryan put on Discord for, uh, for you to lis- listen to at your leisure. Now it's an, it was an hour and, it's an hour and 15 minutes. So hopefully you at least had a chance to listen some, maybe fast through some if, uh, if, uh, you, uh, if it wasn't, uh, floating your boat. Anyway, the presenter is a best-selling author and scientist who teaches at the University of Delaware. His specialty is entomology. So in response to the question, what can one person do to address the effects of climate change? He offers the following. He starts with some brief facts about the problems. I'll mention just three. Uh... Over 3 billion birds have died in the last 50 years. The earth has lost two-thirds of wildlife since 1970. And the bee population that contains over 4,000 different species of bees is uh, basically on the ropes right now. And let me just say, without bees, then there's no... um, there basically is no food, so pretty serious stuff. He then turns to his proposal concerning nature's best hope, which is he categorizes as the changing the way that we landscape. He's trying to make it as practical as possible. In the past, beginning with Teddy Roosevelt, environmentalists focused on wild wilderness lands. Today, there are people everywhere. 86, he, he says, 86.5% of the U.S. land is now privately owned. So we need to save nature, not so much in the wilderness, we need to do that, but we need to save nature where there are people. He suggests starting small with the building blocks, with building blocks as in uh, flowering plants. This is because most birds eat caterpillars. And in fact, caterpillars transfer more energy from plants than any other animal. So part of the re-landscaping project is adding native plants that feed caterpillars. Because of the nature of the specialization, many caterpillars will only feed on certain specific plants. So... He says plant choice matters. So, for instance, oak trees are, from his perspective, the best trees in terms of hosting a diversity of bugs. Or, if you want monarch butterflies, you need to plant the specific uh, plant uh, milkweed because caterpillars that uh, turn into monarch butterflies only will eat milkweed. So his vision is to reduce 
the collective lawn of the U.S. There's about 40 million acres of lawn here in the U.S. So he suggests My dog, Augie's barking in the background. So he suggests as a goal to replant about 20 million acres or about half, just as a goal. These would include individual homeowners and faith community properties, but it would also include those who don't own property since there, since there are many organizations that are desperate for volunteers. His tongue-in-cheek description calls this a way of bringing the national parks to your house. But the collective impact of individuals and communities would be immense, and he illustrates the process from his own house and uh, houses of several of his friends. So as a way of honoring and celebrating Earth Day, I've I've offered up two reflections, one religious and one scientific. But because of the way I define religion, I think actually that they are both religious. There should be plenty of things to discuss, but I personally think that our goal here is not just a discussion, but it should also be a call for action. May we continue to honor God as we dialogue with one another in a spirit of love and encouragement. Part of the growing, part of beginning to understand.